Starting a career as an entrepreneur is not something that you even hear as a career path. You know, my career path is I've been an entrepreneur my whole life and I've just done different businesses, but my career path is an entrepreneur. One of the advantages is you don't know what the other side of the fence has. I've never had a real job in, in the sense of like a nine to five corporate environment. Uh, so you don't really know what you're missing. So you also don't really think it's risky because it's kind of all you know. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's risky. I'm like, how is it risky? I've been doing this my whole life. Like, I don't feel like I'm taking a risk every day when I go to work. You just go to work, you work hard, you put in your effort and you see what happens. And the advantage is that I don't know what I'm missing and I don't feel that it's risky at all because it's all I've ever known. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, Wayne Markman talked about becoming an entrepreneur later in life when he started Simbex Biome, a company that uses medical-grade lasers to treat Parkinson's disease and other conditions. Our guest today has taken the opposite road. Sean Fahey has been an entrepreneur his whole life. He spent his last 13 years building VidRecruiter, an HR and tech company that uses software and video to significantly improve the recruiting process for organizations. Sean shared his experience as an entrepreneur, the advantages and disadvantages of starting early, and he had plenty of helpful advice and suggestions for people who want to start their own business. Enjoy. Tell our listeners who you are, and a little bit of your story, how you got here. Thank you, Dino, and thank you for having me on the podcast today. Uh, my name is Sean Fay, and I am from and live in a place called Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, on the east coast of Canada, just north of Maine. We border with the U.S. And to answer your question and how did I get here to become a, a leader and run my own business, I'm guessing that's sort of the, the idea. Is It started at a young age. I mean, early on in my life, I had this really passionate need uh, at a young age to play Super Nintendo. And my parents did not want to buy me a Super Nintendo because I had the Nintendo and I was spending way too much time on that. And I think I was 13 or something at the time. And all of a sudden, the school had a walkathon where if you raise the most money, you could win a Super Nintendo. So that was the first time where I realized that I have to rely on myself and not rely on others to figure out how to get what it is that I wanted. At the time, it was just to play cooler video games. But that journey and experience led me to go and raise a bunch of money. And I ended up raising like $300, which was like a record for our junior high school. And I won the Super Nintendo. And that early sort of education moment of being able to have an experience where I was in charge, I could lead my, my own path, and that I could get the outcome that I wanted sort of guided me on a path of that you can be in charge of your own decisions and your own path and your own life. You know, sometimes people just let sort of things happen. And, and that initial sort of aha moment, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, that's when it started to happen was let's start driving this car or life down a path that I think is what I want to do. So that's sort of where it started, I guess, is the first thought that I had towards that. Did you start your business right immediately after school or when did you start your first business? After that, I didn't really start in business until uh, I was about 19. I was at university and I was studying pre-med and was at my friend's house or studying and Oprah was on TV. His mom was watching Oprah 
And uh, we're walking by and just it happened to be a guy by the name of uh, Richard Kiyosaki explaining his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I just sat down and started watching Oprah with his mom, my friend's mom, and listening to how he was explaining the book that he had written. And I decided to go buy it and bought it. And at that moment, I realized, ooh, I should be an entrepreneur. This is a good idea. This is sort of a good path. And there's a cash flow quadrant where it explains the difference between employee, self-employed business owner and investor. And that book sort of opened my eyes to the path of what an entrepreneur was. I didn't really understand that concept before. I don't come from that kind of family or background. So that was the initial inspiration. And then once I knew that was something I wanted to do, eventually I found a, a business when I was like 19, a little one here and there. And then another one when I was in my early 20s, I ended up opening retail kiosks in malls. I went to school in Fort Lauderdale and saw a cool opportunity to open little belt stands in malls and copied that idea and did my own little thing. And so I've been an entrepreneur since I was in my early 20s, basically, for the last 20 years or so. I've had some guests on who started their businesses later on in life and some who have started the business and took the entrepreneurial path like you have really early in their lives. So if you think about that, what are some of the advantages and the challenges that starting on the entrepreneurial path immediately you faced? Starting a career as an entrepreneur, which is kind of what I've done, is not something that you even hear as a career path most of the time. You know, my career path is I've been an entrepreneur my whole life and I've just done different businesses, but my career path is an entrepreneur. One of the advantages is you don't know what the other side of the fence has. Like I've never had a real job in, in the sense of like a nine to five corporate environment other than just little stints here and there, but they're all sort of entrepreneurial sort of jobs. Uh, so you don't really know what you're missing. And you also don't really think it's risky because it's kind of all you know. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's risky. I'm like, how is it risky? I've been doing this my whole life. Like, I don't feel like I'm taking a risk every day when I go to work. You just go to work, you work hard, you put in your effort and you see what happens. And uh, so I don't see, like the advantage is that I don't know what I'm missing and I don't feel that it's risky at all because it's all I've ever known. The disadvantage is, is that when you do that, you do go through rough times being an entrepreneur, having any background or maybe nest egg or cash savings to do what it is you want to do without so much risk because you don't see risk and you just do whatever you need to do to keep growing. So it there there is that downside. But I recommend people start off as in entrepreneurs as easily in their career as possible. What was the moment when you realize that, hey, this path is actually going to work for me, you know, in terms of success. And then what was it like to experience that? I've had that happen a couple of times in my career where it's like, oh, yeah, this is working. I can afford food and rent and whatever I needed to do. And I've had different variations of that feeling, you know, like, oh, I'm making it. I can afford this. I can afford that. Now, the current company that I run has 175 employees and we're hiring about 10 to 20 people a month. And just now is just feeling that even more at a different level. You know, we we have a pretty successful business. We're growing like crazy. We've been fortunate to to benefit from new remote hiring trends and video technology and trends. So that feeling is is rejuvenated all the time, right? It's constantly happening and constantly changing the point of view. As you're scaling the business, there's always moment where, you know, it's a first time, right? Because you started from scratch with your own business. What were some of the inflection points in going from one level to another one and sort of the changes that you thought you had to make, you know, to be successful at the next level? I think the overall 
an arcing sort of thought process that you need to have from those stages is a continuous improvement model because everything I do every day, I've never done before. There's nothing that I've done. And if I continue to repeat the same work that I've been doing in the past, the business won't grow. So you need to be looking and evolving your thought process in terms of, okay, what do I need to improve on the current status quo? However, you need to do that without going too fast in your improvement or too many changes because then you'll derail your business, which I've done both of those. So you have to have a continuous improvement thought process that is tested against reality. Some entrepreneurs tend to not live in reality. They tend to be too optimistic, which I used to be in my previous businesses, and I got burned for being too optimistic. So it's a continuous improvement model within reality. And the way to spot check if that's working, I think I read a quote from Larry Ellison from Oracle, was like, look at your current status. Are you happy with this current status that you have today? If not, it's not working. Like, just look at what you have in front of you. Like, live in reality for that split second. Is it working? Yes. Keep going. Improve. Is it not? No. Fix what's not working. So that's kind of the, the idea of the process is to go through that kind of thought process. Okay. And you mentioned sort of in passing, you had a couple of challenges, you know, where you either went too fast or you faced sort of challenging in your previous business. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share one of those moments and like the key lessons that you learned in that moment. The first business I went into, I didn't think about it too, too much. It was just an opportunity of retail with belt buckles. And there was this sort of opportunity that I, I just jumped into that opportunity. I didn't think about the business itself that I was going into from the point of view of analyzing the long-term outcome and doing a proper analysis of like, not so much, will this business be viable? I believe every business can be viable if if there's a market for the product. But is this the kind of business that I want to create to make viable? And if I do, are the outcomes that can exist from that business being viable the right ones that make the most sense? So as an example, early on, I realized that Retail has a very high cost of labor, cost of product. There's the malls and the outcome. If let's say you want to have an outcome where you no longer work in the business and you sell it are very low margin wise in terms of the outcome of that business. And we ended up getting affected by the 2008, 2009 recession dramatically as retail was no longer popular at that time. So when that happened, I sort of had a self-reflection of, okay, what are the better businesses to be in? Software is very popular. And software is a really good industry. Hiring is sort of recession-proof because there's always someone hiring or someone letting go or some kind of hiring tool. Hiring has different challenges. And so not knowing anything about software, I now run a software company. You know, So it wasn't because I needed to be a software engineer. It was because I needed to understand concepts of what are good businesses to do. And you can get white papers on like, what kind of business should I go? What are the advantages, disadvantages? What are the competitive drivers of that? What are the investment models that you need? And sort of find a way into the business that suits your lifestyle, your model, what you kind of want to invest, what your outcome is. And, you know, do you want a lifestyle business or not? You know, so these are kind of things that I wish I would have done in the first business, which I did in the second time. Your current business, VitCruiter, has been around for quite a while. When did you start? Bidcruiter, we started in 2009, but I didn't know anything about recruiting, didn't know anything about software. So there was a two, three year period where it's just a sort of hobby side project while I was doing another business, trying to do this one instead. During the recession, I tried to switch 
and then doing side jobs from bartending to teaching at university to selling medical supplies all part-time to sort of find a footing into how I could go into this kind of a business. And finally, in 2012, we raised some investors and we started doing this full-time and then launched the current product we have in 2013. So it was a, a couple of years of sort of digging and finding what would work in the market, not understanding it. That's where you have the advantage if you work in the private sector or work in, the, in an organization, you can see these opportunities and get paid a paycheck while you're sort of thinking about this business and testing it out instead of just going through that other model that I was describing. You said you went to software and you didn't know a lot about software. As you are putting together the plan for the business, what were some of the key steps that you took in thinking about what my team should look like, what are the competencies that I need, and, and you know how do I go about getting those competencies to start this business? Sure, yeah. So the first thing I said is, well, I need a software developer, you know, someone to sort of co-found this with me. So I started finding and going through different people to help me do that part of the business. The second thing that I always find people do is oftentimes people will look for investors to then sell shares in their business to then go and hire people. But one thing that we did early on for those first three years is just give shares to people, not 50% of the company to three people, but a small percentage of per hour shares at a certain valuation that an investor would give me in terms of equity to starting staff. And I think we had like 15 different founders uh, in our cap table because all of them are getting like small percentages of the company as they were working there. You know, three or four left, three or four came on later, but it didn't cost me anything. I'd have to get investors. We were just trading shares to staff for work in a business model that we wanted to look at, see if it would work. And you didn't have the pressure of these investors and this you know, if I can't convince someone to work for free on my idea and see if it's going to develop, why should I try to convince an investor to give me money on the idea? And then all the pressure associated with these outcomes that they're expecting that you don't even know what you're doing yet. So that's one of the things that a lot of people, I think, don't realize. It's like trade your shares for work on a product to find the product market fit business model before you go out and try to get investors for that. That's a different approach that I took there, but it ended up being very beneficial for us. You mentioned the first person was a software developer. Is uh, this a co-founder partner, like a significant co-founder partner? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually have four software developer co-founders that all started at different stages of that 2009, 2012. Some came, some left, some came back. All four of them work here now, and they all are significant shareholders in our business. Yeah. This is, I think, a really important challenge that many entrepreneurs face, which is you're starting the business, you need to find the right partner. And sometimes in the heat of that initial decision, you don't go through the proper process to find the right partner, which ends up creating issues down the line if the business is actually successful. It sounds like your four co-founders are all have all been successful as a choice for you, what are some of the steps that you took that you felt really created the conditions for this partners to come on board and that be a successful partnership? It's too hard to tell if someone's going to be good long-term within three coffee dates, you know, or whatever you have. It's impossible to predict. So, you know, this share trade for work concept is what I recommend to everyone. 
And if you have pushback from someone else who wants to be 50-50, whatever, I would just tell them, put yourself in that same situation. So in this fictional scenario that we have, the company has 100 shares. 98 of those shares are owned by the company and no actual owner. We each own one share. And every hour that we work, we will own one more share, which, you know, those numbers don't actually make sense. But, you know, every thousand hours we work, we'll own one more share. And if you are willing to go all the way the distance as the founder yourself, then you have no concern that you're not going to get your 50, 60, 70, whatever percent of shares that you want. If your co-founder decides to leave tomorrow morning, he owns one share, less than 1% or 1% of the business. And you're both equally working to earn the percentage of shares that the business represents. That's basically what VCs do when they do vesting schedules for their own founder shares sometimes. Just do it at the beginning with yourself, with the partners, because you don't know if that guy's going to get a job at Google tomorrow morning and then leave you with a half code base. And then you have 50% ownership in a company or whatever it is that you can't get back. He or she doesn't want to sign it over. And then you're stuck in the business dies. So you, you're not going to win. You put yourself at basically equally from the beginning in terms of earning the shares. Maybe you have like a slightly higher compensation in terms of the share that you earn, but you started at the same level as your partners. That exact scenario did not play out exactly like that in our case. Uh, one of our founders, we did do the 50-50 thing and then he did leave. However, he was nice enough to give back most of his shares to be able to give to another CTO that we come back. That rarely happens. That gentleman was a friend of mine and we were partners in previous businesses and understood the value of what we were discussing and gave back the shares. But I, if someone would have told me, no, don't do it that way. Give yourself either one, each 1% each quarter that you work. And if he leaves, then you're not stuck with that problem. And if you leave, they have to find another CEO or whatever so that you're not in a position where the business dies because someone left. Just don't set it up to fail, right? This way you can't fail. So in whatever the vesting schedule is, people will negotiate based on the workload, the contribution, who started, when did they start? You know, like those were all changes. But the other 10 or 15 people that helped found BidCruder, some of them still own shares today. One of them owns like 0.0001% of the company. He worked for us for two months. He was a coder that helped and then went to Germany and did something else. You know, like it doesn't matter. It's not... But it's not substantial to the business. It didn't hurt the business anyway. He did help. He didn't get paid cash. Now he has those shares. Now they're worth a lot more than what he, you know, so it, everyone wins. There's no losers in that scenario. The goal is to have a win-win outcome. And so the only way to do that is that everyone has realistic expectations about what the business is worth and where it is. And 50 of nothing is nothing. So what's the difference if I own 50% or 1%? It shouldn't make a difference. Through your career, obviously you ran the businesses. When did you start thinking about how you want to be a leader and a manager and, and do you have a leadership silent and what does that look like? What, you know, what are your key principles to lead people? I never really set out to be a leader, you know, like it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be a leader now. I do meet people like that sometimes, but it was more about, I set out to go accomplish something. And I have a personality that when I'm going to accomplish something, I'm just going to accomplish that. I don't really do anything else. And so people always ask, oh, you don't like work-life balance and you're working all the time. And what, you know, why are you doing that? But I'm like, well, what's your hobby? What's your favorite hobby, right? 
oh, I like reading books. I like going to the park. I like doing this. My hobby is working at VidCruiter. So when I'm done my nine to five job, I then go to my, do my hobby full time. And that's happens to be sitting in this exact same chair, continuing to do the exact same thing I was doing. So you might like watching these TV shows or movies. I like working here for some people. They don't understand. But then I say, well, think of an Olympic athlete. What do they tend to do? They tend to do that sport all the time and live and eat and breathe that sport because they want to compete to win. It's the same concept. It just applies to business. And some people just don't understand, I guess, in some cases where they would want to work that hard. But that work ethic just happened to have other people gravitate around me who were like, oh, this guy's working hard. He wants to do this thing. He's pretty motivated. Let's work with this guy. And then I sort of became a leader through just that kind of drive. I had also helped at certain stages of my career where I had to do a lot of public speaking and, you know, this kind of approach to making sure that people get motivated and excited. But that wasn't what I was set out to do is just to do something fun and work hard at it. And so that's kind of how it, I guess I've become a leader through that. What do you expect out of the people that are working for you? And, and, and how do you think about who you want in your leadership team? I've tried to not set expectations on other people because no one ever meets your expectations in life, I find. So if I have an expectation that you need to do X, Y, Z, and you don't meet that, then I'm going to be not happy that you didn't meet the expectation that I had for you that you didn't want to achieve in the first place. So I try to set it as, we're going to accomplish this thing. And everyone who's part of this team gets to go to the level of accomplishment that they want. And you can promote yourself. Most of my staff have promoted themselves. I think half of them came in one day, you know, over a period of four or five months, I'm like, hey, I gave myself a promotion. I'm a manager now. Well, I'm like, congratulations. Then, you know, a couple of years go by, I'm a director now. I'm like, oh, good for you, you know? And then one of them came back recently and said, you know what? I don't think I'm a director. I'm more of a manager. I don't want the responsibility of doing this. I'm like, oh, well, I'm glad you realized that because you weren't accomplishing those. So they kind of like moved in and up into the roles based on where they wanted to be in life and the level of responsibility because I'm like, oh, this is your new title. Okay, well, here's your team. Manage all this. Do all this work. Uh, I don't want to do that. So it's, it's sort of like letting people decide the level of engagement that they want to have within the organization. And I try to have that with not every single staff member, but everyone who wants to excel and move up into, you know, they come and sit down in my office. Hey, I would like to do this. I want to move up. I want to do this. Sure. Let's talk about what that path looks like. Let's talk about what the responsibilities look like. Let's talk about what a VP here does and makes and, and accomplishes. Do you have that skill set? Maybe not today, but it's a good goal for you to have. I'm glad you're ambitious. We want to have ambitious people. So, you know, as much as possible, I try to let people do what they want. How has your approach to managing people change as you move from like, you know, a small, tight company or, you know, 10, 15 people that you knew well to now you have, you mentioned over 160 and there's like 10 people that are coming and you mentioned every month, is that how, or every week? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't actually know the exact number. It's kind of funny because uh, we have contractors, too, that are staffed basically in other parts of the world. So I don't have like a an updated number every day. But I do get emails like, okay, five new people this week, five new people this week. Five, you know, on LinkedIn, it says we're about 180 people right now. I'm sure I could ask somebody. But the difference between a small team where you can know what's going on and a bigger team is process. And so putting in processes in place that give you the same outcome that you are relying on from the team size that you have in place, not over processing, but not under processing. And 
One of the most important things I think that a business owner needs to realize and have in their operational mindset is that if something is not flowing perfectly, there's a process that's missing. Or if something's not flowing perfectly and the right information's coming back, there's too many processes. And being able to put a pulse on that is one of the most important factors of being a business owner. So when someone comes to me with a complaint or something or something didn't work or someone's mad or just something is not flowing, like there's just noise, something's wrong. Fix that. There's a process that is missing within the way in which the business is operating. And to have a pulse on that is the key to continuously growing the business at every stage, no matter what the stage is, in my opinion. And what about company culture? Did you set out to set up a certain type of culture? And then how do you make sure that that gets preserved as the company grows really quickly? One of my goals is to try to make sure everyone has fun at work. So an example of that, which I share with a lot of people, is that there was a junior person three, four years ago, she came into the office and she was all stressed out. It was her first week at the office. She walks in, she comes up to me and she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so nervous. I'm so worried. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, I'm sorry that I'm late for work today. It was like nine ten or something. I'm like, what do you mean late for work? She's, you know, did you have a meeting with a client that you were late for that you had to go talk to? And now you're not on the call. And now you're telling me that you're late. Why are you not in front of this client? You know, she's like, no, no, I didn't have a meeting with a client. It was just, I thought I had to be here at nine and it's nine ten, And I'm sorry, I'm late for work. I said, oh, don't worry about that. You know, if you show up at nine ten, then leave at five ten. There's no need to worry about the time that you come into work. The next day she came in again in the same story. The next day again, she came in in the same story. And so I sat her down in the boardroom and I said, listen, I used to be late for work all the time. My boss, I was, a, I was a bartender, and my boss would get mad at me all the time. However, everyone left at 11 p.m., and I worked till 4 a.m. every night. And so when he'd come in and tell me, hey, you're late for work at this bartending job, I said, yeah, yeah, but I work four hours more than everyone else. Yes, I missed the first five minutes of the shift, but do you want me to, you know, what are you talking about? You want to fire me? And I, I realized the driving to work and the stress that you have when you're late for a clock that is fictional, that that doesn't matter what it says versus driving to work, walking in happy is such a different mindset. And the mindset that there is no time to clock into, unless you have a client call, you have an obligation of a meeting that you set that time, right? Generally, you would set up your own meetings. Then that, that doesn't exist here, right? As much as possible. Like certain people have certain shifts that they have to cover another person. But I try to not have these kinds of rules that have been put in other companies. It's like, no, if you have to show up when you want to show up, if you show up early, show up late, work an extra five minutes, leave an extra five minutes. It doesn't matter. I don't want you to have that tense, stressful feeling coming into the office and walking in with that in your head. I want you to come in here rested and happy to come in and not have the stress of starting your day with that. And that kind of philosophy, whether it's late for work or whatever it is within the whole organization, whether it's a lunch break or a coffee break or a doctor's appointment, or just don't worry about it. That's great. I think this is a, a good segue because obviously your company is focused on remote recruiting and you know we've gone through a transition into more hybrid. And I think there's a lot of debates around rules of engagement. Can people be as productive in their home as they're in their workplace? In the traditional world, if somebody was told that, oh, you can effectively recruit just through video, they probably would have thought that you were crazy. So tell me how you came up with the idea and then 
maybe what, what were some of the challenges that you faced initially and how that has changed over time? So the idea for VidCurter came to me when I was working for past the other company, trying to find a job to to work and and pay bills, and you know during the recession, and I got hired at this insurance company as a hundred percent commission sales person, and the I did pretty good, and and the executive team there sat me down and said, listen, our goal is to hire two hundred insurance agents across the country over the next five years. And if you help us do that, and everyone that you train and bring on, you'll become the manager of that team, and you'll get overrides and promotions, and you'll move up, and you'll be super senior here if you could build a team of like five to ten agents that work with you in your branch or your office to go sell insurance for our company. And I'm kind of an ambitious person, you know. I went home, you know, but I said, what if I could hire these 200 people by myself, and what if I could hire them? without really having to spend too much time talking to them and meeting them. What if I could do this in an automated fashion that I could just sit in my office and a finalist would walk in and I could just determine on that time a couple of questions and see if I want to hire them or not. And what if I could do that in 10 days, you know? And so just asking myself a series of these types of questions made me realize, I'm like, oh, it'd be cool if there was like some kind of an automated hiring system that a candidate could apply to a job get interviewed for that job, get their reference check for that job, do some kind of skill test for that job. Then if they passed all those levers, I could get a sort of overview of their profile, watch a couple of video questions that they've answered at home, click a button and send them to a calendar to automatically book to meet me in person or at a video conference to talk to them and then decide if I want to hire them or not. And I sort of realized that didn't really exist. And so in 2009, when I had the idea of this sort of automated video process, it was kind of derived from that. One of the other components was I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos of people that were training about business, kind of like this podcast. I'd watch these things and I started to feel like I wouldn't get to know the people who were doing the training. You watch a TV show for long enough and, you know, let's say you watch Friends, you know Monica, you know who she is, you know Chandler, you know what I mean? You know Jerry from Seinfeld, like you feel like you know that person. That idea in an interview without meeting them, watching it, it was like, just like TV, you know? So I often use Netflix as an analogy for one of our core products. And so people don't realize that when you do these recordings and stuff, you really get to know someone. And I was like, well, why don't I just have people do that? I'll record myself too. They get to know me. It's basically asynchronous, just like email, except it's video. And so that idea took time. At the beginning, it wasn't too popular. No one was really using video, like you mentioned. So the challenge was to realize that that was a good idea when no one wanted to buy that product and keep moving forward in a business that a lot of my competitors from 2009, 10, 11, 12, up until 2019 went out of business or sold their business early or, you know, there's very few of them that stayed past that point. And then, as you know, you know, the world changed and video became the way that everyone does business. And we happen to be in the video business. So, you know, we went from, we were 30 employees in 2019. Now we're about 180. The train is just like it's here and we're helping all sorts of organizations around the world from governments to everyone. So it's kind of just being persistent. One of the things that entrepreneurs need that you need to probably do a test for. And uh, Martin Seligman wrote a bunch of books, one of them called Authentic Happiness and Learned Optimism. And that school, I think it's Penn, has a personality test. And you can do a test on how happy you are, how optimistic you are, and all these kinds of things. And there's one about grit and persistence. And I think that the entrepreneurs that I've met who are the most successful 
have a lot of persistence. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, you would I would recommend go do the grit test. Go find out how persistent you are and go scale yourself against other people. I did the test. I'm literally one of the most persistent people in the world or like the most gritty. I don't know if that's the word, but I have one of the highest grit scores in the scale against tens of thousands of other people. And then if you want to be an entrepreneur, then work on that skill set to have a higher grit tolerance. And you will then, your personality will adapt to the type of personality that you need to be to become this kind of entrepreneur. Because, you know, it's just kind of a thing that happens all the time. You need that skill set. So and if you don't have it, you can develop it. It's not like you, these are things that people can do. Yeah, it's UPenn. Uh, they have the tests online that you could go to. So that's like a good spot check. Like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Okay, well, you need these personality traits. Do you have them? No. Okay, well, then do that first. Because if you don't have that, you're going to fail because there's a formula. That's great. I wanted to ask you, you have mentioned e- even earlier that, you know, my hobby is Bitcruiter. I think that the type of commitment and effort that you're putting in there does not happen without also a passion and a certain amount of happiness. So, w- so what is exciting to you about your, you know, being an entrepreneur and recruiter? Oftentimes, I hear people be excited about the product that they're selling, and I think they miss the mark. Uh, you know, before this, I was selling belt buckles, and people said, "Oh, you must have loved belt buckles." I said, "No, I just love belt buckle margins." I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't because you know I, I was a big belt guy. I have three belts right now. You know, it's I fell in love with process and the process of building the business and the process of improving the business. And the book that I read that opened my eyes to this concept was a book called E-Myth, which is the entrepreneur myth. And so that concept is what got me excited. And the concept of opening and running a business and seeing that as a challenge to succumb and so whether it doesn't matter whether you're selling, you know, telephones or computer screens or coffee mugs, it's like the challenge of operating that business in a way that it's efficient. And one of the things that the Rich Dad Poor Dad book said in the E-Myth book said is if you cannot leave your business for two or three months and come back and it is bigger than and still running smoothly without you being there, then you have not built a real business. You have built yourself a job. So good for you. You may have a good income, but that's not a real business that runs and operates on its own. You know, then they use the analogy of McDonald's. McDonald's, one location does like $1.5 million a year, $2 million. I don't remember the exact numbers, but how many restaurants do $1.5 million a year that are run by high school kids? Not too many, but they have so many processes in place that that runs smoothly, that operation without even needing veteran restauranteurs running the operation of making that business churn out that revenue. So my recommendation is fall in love with the process, not the product. Because then you can truly be in a, a career entrepreneur. If you fall in love with the product, then you if that business doesn't work for whatever reason, the go to market, the product didn't mix, you know, the belt buckles are no longer popular, you won't want to do it again you know but and it won't be fun because you're going to have some hard times and you're going to associate that to the and it's being able to be critical about the process and critical about the business that you're in you know one of the things i was reading warren buffett's autobiography at the time and he said retail is one of the worst businesses to be in i was like ah okay well i need to get out of this business and i wasn't attached to that as much that business was a school project i did that while i was going to school in florida you know so it didn't matter and so that's kind of the idea is 
fall in love and be passionate about the process of building companies and the way in which you can build them in a way that you don't need to maintain it at some point in the future and have that as your end goal. And then everything else will fall into place. How has your personal definition of success changed over time? I think it's still the same. It's about being able to walk away and have the business keep growing. Well, I guess there's a like making an impact. Making an impact is pretty important. Our business has dramatically reduced the amount of people driving their cars and dramatically reduced the time to hire someone. And when putting these people in certain key jobs makes a huge difference for those organizations. Like one of our clients is the Coast Guard and we reduced their time to hire from 200 days to 40 days and they're saving hundreds of thousands of dollars and people are having better quality of life because they don't have to work as much. And like these impacts that we're doing, we did one process with our product, like one job that we ran and we saved cutting 50,000 trees with this one job that we did. They told, oh, by the way, we saved 50,000 pieces of paper for one job that was run in our product. It was like three trees, actually. I Googled it. But it's, it's just like these little things. And, and one thing that I think that with you know humans and, and what we're doing here on this planet is that there's only a very small percentage of people who move the needle and have the human race progress. And, I, and if there's anything that I would tell someone is do a business that makes progress. Like games, I played it a lot when I was a kid, but there's no evolution of our species by playing a game. You know, and if there's any other business that I thought of that I would do that would push that more is like, I wish Bitcooter could do more of that. And I'm jealous of Elon Musk that he can push the needle more for all of us. And but that's one person doing so much change for everyone else around the world. And it's, if everyone did one one millionth of that, just pushing the progress forward, we would all have better lives. You know, some people are scared of technology, but more medicine, better food, less people hungry, like progress brings better for the world, you know? And I know capitalism isn't always the best system, but it's better than anything else we've found. And it, since its inception, it's been doing really good. So, you know, generally speaking, and if more people got on that bandwagon in their businesses, is your business making an impact or is it just Oh, we invented a game or it's a new clothing line or da, 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 da. It's like, try to do something that's going to move the needle. That's kind of what my definition of success is now. And I feel like I'm not doing that enough, even though we're saving trees and paper and driving and we're making our difference and, you know, all, all of that. It's just kind of like, it's not enough. So, and that's the sort of entrepreneur in me that's always never enough. But that that's my recommendation is if you can do a business in that sector, then I am envious of people who can do that the most. And I, that's what I recommend people do. I'm going to ask you one last question about the business. And it is, there's a lot of debates and stories now around the fact that, you know, businesses who exploded during the pandemic, just because of the nature of their product, are now retrenching, whether it is Netflix low in, in uh, subscribers or, you know, Snapchat yesterday announced a layoff of 20% of the workforce because they say people are spending less time on Snapchat. How has the end of the pandemic affected your business, if at all? So we currently have about 30 open jobs just in Canada and another 20 overseas. The pandemic has made video interviewing popular. And were maybe not popular, but normal. 
So before it was like, oh, should we do a video or come in person? I'll just go in person and, you know, we'll be able to meet in person. Now it's like, should we do a video or should I come into the office or should we do a video? It's like, oh, we're not in the office. We're all working from home. We're all going to do a video for sure. No one's going to, you know, so it's flipped it. And being in the video business and selling to governments and other major organizations around the world, we're top of mind. It's normal. So, you know, we're one of the lucky businesses that have been able to help people work from home and give them tools to work from home. So we are luckily still hiring, still growing. July was the best month of all time in our company. That's the month that just went by. It's just, uh, we keep moving the needle forward. So there, we, we've been lucky not to be affected by the pandemic negatively, basically. That's great. Well, I think this is a good point to transition to the more personal questions. So I think you answered it already because my question is, do you have a hobby outside of work or an interest? And how has that impacted your work life? <laughs> so I just had a daughter. So that's my other hobby is to spend time with her. I don't mean that as she's my hobby, but uh, any other free time I have, I try to spend with my family. That's great. And But before that, I used to do a lot of sailing. Uh, so that was my other personal fun times. Final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. Is there something, and it can be if you go the body route, it can be a recipe or a drink, or if you go the soul route, it can be a book, a song, a movie, a piece of art, play, TV show, something that you know inspires you or that you go to find inspiration. Take five, the jazz band, Ava Breck, that song. Yep. And some Miles Davis maybe sometimes. Just to chill and relax. Those are good. And then when I want to get amped up, it's like Eminem and Jay-Z and maybe some Sinatra in there too sometimes. But it's basically just to have the right music for the right thought process, I guess. I find music really inf influences people more than they, they realize. And a lot of what I used to do is listen to music without words because I didn't want to have the influence of whatever messaging they were saying until I found the key songs from the key artists that had the right message that I wanted to listen to. That was pretty important. That's great. Sean, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for your great, inspiring answers. I think there's a lot of food for thought for entrepreneurs in this conversation and, and a lot of things that may be not so common from people who think about starting a business. So thank you very much. That's my goal. And thank you, Dean. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews, please leave a rating or a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo. You can learn more about VitCruiter's HR and recruiting solutions on their website, vitcruiter.com, spelled V-I-D-C-R-U-I-T-E-R.com. You can find episode notes and links on our website, al4ep.com, with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Find the show on Twitter and Instagram at, at al4edp, with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Sean talked about the power of music, so I picked a song that Susan wrote exactly about that. It's from her pop country EP, Little Big Sky, and it's called Let the Music Deliver Me.
inside the history Each line like a page from my diary Love's been kinda hard on me Get my feet to the fire Spirit ain't staying down No heartache will hold me to the ground I follow a rocking sound Taking me Making steel cut wings Flying me home 